they are experts at, at reading our body language and our more subtle cues because that's what survivorship means for them. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to a podcast episode that's gonna fly by on the Raw Safari Podcast. See, that's a joke because we're talking about burbs today, y'all, but not in the way that we normally do. Uh, you know, I'll tell you more about that in a minute, but first, let's talk about some things. Uh, number one, Sorry to tell you, but if you haven't ordered your custom tie-dye bandit shirt yet, it is now too late. We had sales blow past our expectations, and because these are all hand-dyed and individual pieces of art, our lovely artist friend Carissa decided that we needed to cap the number at 75 sales, which we hit in just a couple of days. So if you didn't get your bandit, you're not going to be able to get your bandit, but I'm going to talk to Carissa about trying to do this again in the future. So We'll see. Maybe you'll get a second chance. But I do want to say thank you to everyone who helped me and Peace, Love, and Tie-Dye support Red Panda Network in this amazing way. And if you don't know what I'm talking about as you listen to this, well, that's because you're not following me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Raw Safari, uh, and you should be. So go do that and make sure you hit subscribe to this podcast and all those good things because, hey, it helps, and I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So anyway, let's talk about today's episode because it's a good one, and I don't want to do a lot of stalling. Today, I am bringing you another of those, I like to call them my dirt road episodes. These are the facilities that aren't zoos and, and kind of exist in this world, and they're almost always out somewhere where you're going to end up on a dirt road. And as I'm driving out there and the dust is flying around my car, I'm thinking to myself, boy, I hope these directions are good. And occasionally I'll see a sign that says, you know, dead end or if you drive this way, I'm going to shoot you. And, and then I just have to remember, you know, this is, this is where they said, turn left, turn left uh, instead of getting murdered. And then I turn left and then I'm at a really cool place. And um, today that place is Avian Behavior International. This is, I, mm, you know what, we're going to spend half the podcast defining what ABI is because there is a whole lot that happens at this facility. But what you need to know going into it is that this is a place where they train and free fly birds. Okay. So when I got there, the first thing that we did was chat and get through all that stuff. But then the second thing that we did was just kind of walk around and meet a bunch of really cool birds. But then the third thing that we did is free flew some macaws. And, and what that looked like is exactly what it sounds like. Um, we had some macaws and they came out of their enclosures and they were chilling on a perch and then they were told to go fly and do the thing. And so they took off 
into the air above this this amazing place in the mountains of Escondido, California, this kind of cool, deserty place. And we all walked up to a tree and hung out there, and you could just see the macaws flying all around majestically. And then eventually they they came back to their, their macaw tree. And they hung out there. And then they were flown again and told, hey, go back to your perch. And even though it was like really far away, they, they, they did. And then they got to go back into their enclosures. It was so cool and such a different experience than I have had at, at any, you know, zoos or even cool bird rehab places like Vins that I've been to. And so my interview today is with Hillary Hankey, who is an amazing animal trainer and runs Avian Behavior International and and owns this property with her husband. And um, it's it's just so cool. It's so different. And I have to tell you that this is an interview that not only was I very excited about, but that I have also been told by a lot of people, you know, you need to get up there. And next time that you're out in California, you need to to get to ABI and talk to Hillary. So when I found out I was gigging in California, I reached out to Hillary and uh, she was awesome about it. We had a great chat. Uh, we were actually connected by friend of the podcast who you all know, Danny Poirier Larson. And um, um, I know that Danny is incredibly excited about this episode. So hi, Danny. Here it is. And uh, Danny even provided me with some questions about training that I was able to ask Hillary. Now, I'm not going to say in the podcast which questions those were, but it'll be pretty obvious when I go from asking about the dumb stuff I normally ask to asking really impressive detailed training questions that I got those from Danny. So Thank you, Danny. And with that said, I think it's about time to get to it. So uh, let's listen to our commercial. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. And now let's get some cool insight into training and birds and all the cool stuff that we talked about with Hillary Hankey of Avian Behavior International. All right. Well, why don't we start off by you telling me who you are, where we are, and what you do here? All right. Thank you. My name is Hillary Hankey, and I'm the owner and director of Avian Behavior International in Escondido, California. We are sitting on 20 acres of prime bird training territory, but more specifically, we are actually in a reptile room surrounded by a bunch of snakes. Yeah, I thought this was going to be a bird podcast and uh, nope. <laughs> so tell me all about your snake. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, awesome. Yeah. So welcome, first of all, uh, and thank you for having me here. This is a really special place. 
Yeah, thank you. I I absolutely agree. I wake up every morning excited to just take it all in every day. It is a truly special place. I couldn't agree more. So you are widely accepted as a bird training expert. I'm just going to say the words. You probably hate compliments, but, uh, you know, and, um, you are a person who has been recommended to me for the podcast many times. Uh, there, you have lots of fans, if you don't know that in the, in the bird nerd world. Um, and part of why that is, is just a deep knowledge and understanding of training. But part of that is because you do free flight and that's amazing. That is true. It's, uh, it's actually the thing that really got me really excited about positive reinforcement because I was, uh, I had a free flight mentor probably, oh, it was probably like 1999, 2000. And I didn't really know the, the basis of the science that I was practicing until I took a couple of seminars and I got really excited about, uh, operant conditioning and behavior science. And then I caught the free flight bug and I just started training everything to fly that I possibly could. And now I just, I was actually working with a client and we were talking about some eagles. And I said that the first time getting birds out into the air was probably my favorite day of any training session. And it's kind of my superpower because I just love that kind of stress that comes with, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to happen with a session. I know my skills. I know this bird skills. I know my team skills. And I really, really enjoy doing it a whole lot. That That is evident. So when I got here, the first thing that we did was we f- did some free flight with uh, macaws. And um, you and I have been hanging out for about an hour now. And you're like a pretty chill, pretty laid back person. We've had lots of dumb jokes, lots of laughs, lots of good times. But when those birds were out, you snapped into a different persona, really. Your eyes were on them the entire time you were locked. You were locked on your team. You were repositioning people while being very positive and and always kind about it. But you knew exactly what needed to happen for that situation. And it was really cool to watch. And then the the second that the birds were were back, you know, home, then you were just like, shoulders down and like being you know, not as focused again, being, being a dork again. I'm just going to say it. We're both big dorks here. Let's be honest. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's really evident. And I'm, I'm guessing that that is, you know, when you say that's your superpower, that's your Clark Kent to Superman moment when it snaps on. Yeah, I, I guess I never really realized it, but it is something that I instill with everyone who comes here, interns, staff, is that when there is a bird out, even if it's a raptor on creance, whatever it is that we're working with, you are always treating that bird as if it can go anywhere and everywhere. And it's your responsibility to know exactly what that bird's body language is telling you. So it is my responsibility to keep the bird safe, but also keep you and my trainers safe. And okay. It's an animal podcast. We're allowed to have animals. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just making sure we are full of Guinea fowl here, but making sure that I know exactly where that, um, where the bird is, is likely to go next. So I want to make sure that they, uh, that I know exactly what's happening. And so it is really just something that has been part of my behavioral vernacular for, uh, 20 years, more than 20 years now. So I, I guess I just do it naturally, but it is something that I teach everyone is like, Hey, watch you walking away. Make sure you're, you know, peeping over your shoulder, watching that bird. 
That's awesome. Very cool. Um, so uh, before we get into some training stuff, um, let's talk about ABI. So Avian Behavior International, elevator pitch. Explain to my listeners what that is. That's a great question. So we do have a really broad audience. And so when someone asks me what ABI does, I say that we focus on the human and animal connection in a variety of different ways. And we put progressive training at the forefront. And our idea is to make conservation education fun and entertaining and in a way that you can experience the true nature of a full flighted bird. That's that's a good elevator pitch. I like it. Um, what what avenues do you use? I know that you can book tours here, and we'll talk more about what those experiences are like and, and some of the birds here. Um, but what else do you do? Because I know you assist other facilities and stuff. You've, you've got a, a large amount of stuff going on. Yeah, that is that is for sure. <laughs> yeah, so we do book tours here. Yep, and then we also we do some contracts. It really depends on the facility that we want to do like a free flight contract for because I do fly my birds a little bit different than you might have seen in other places. They do fly really big, and we want to make sure that that kind of stays true to us because it is important for our training paradigm. But we also do a lot of educating. We have an online membership with uh, trainers and parrot people as well. And so we really want to put like progressive training in people's minds that we're not just focusing just on positive reinforcement. It's really like a holistic and comprehensive way that people can work with their animals. That's really, really awesome. I love that. Um, and you know, you said it's not just for facilities, but for, uh, parrot people in general. And I have found that the citizen community is, um, a lot. Uh, there are a lot of really strong opinions by bird owners. Um, and I'm not talking to zoos. I'm talking like private owners and stuff. Um, I know that the internet is just full of strong opinions nowadays, but the citizen community seems to uh, take that to a, to the nth degree. So um, wh- what has your uh, experience been with and what has your reception been like uh, in that community? Yeah, that's that is that is putting it lightly. Uh, um, I think one of the things that's really tough is that it's hard to really define what expertise is in like parrot the parrot world because someone and I say this I say this a ton of different ways, but someone with an eclectus can get on YouTube and get thousands and thousands of views you know, recommending feeding products, recommending how to train your parrot to step up and all of these things. And that makes them look like an expert. And I'm not taking away from that person's experience and and learning history, but it can be really hard when you have someone, for instance, like me, who does have decades of experience consulting all different kinds of species with all different kinds of backgrounds is that that person has their subset of N equals one. And when it comes to just really learning how to help people and and how people learn and want to learn and be taught, uh, that um, it can create a lot of strong opinions because we want to be right rather than to serve each other. And that part kind of makes me sad because it, if you're in it for the money when it comes to you know working with animals, then you're probably not going to get very far. I hope. I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think there are those people that do succeed with the wrong intentions. But I think it's rare because um, animals poop a lot and um, animals can also read 
people really well. Um, I actually, this is going a little off the rails, but I like to do that. I have a theory about myself that I wanted to run by you. Um, and if this is really dumb, I will cut it. But um, I've, I've had this experience happen where I get to meet cool animals and um, either like, something behind the scenes or, or even just at a zoo or something where there's like a standoffish animal or whatever. But especially when I go and do the behind the scenes stuff and I'm told, oh, this, this red panda doesn't like males. And I am the only male that Red Panda will take food from. And, you know, that has happened and stuff like that. And my little theory, my little pet theory on it, just as I've experienced it, is that for whatever reason, when I get around animals, as excited as I get, when I'm actually with the animal, I am completely calm. It is such an otherworldly experience for me that it's like a moment of zen and I stay completely calm and I'm cool and I'm enjoying it and my, my voice goes up like three octaves. But other than that, I am very calm. And then after the fact, I'll walk away. I don't know if you noticed, but as we walked away from the birds, I was like, <laughs> and my hands started moving. But when we were actually like hanging out with the birds, I was just chilling. Um, and I, I, I don't know why I am built that way, but I, I have been that way for all of this. And I'm wondering if, if you think that like animals in general can read that kind of thing, or if that's just me, that's just, like I said, that's my pet theory. Well, I like that you point that out because, and it, it, it goes back to experience and it goes back to closing that feedback loop. So what you're talking about is someone who probably is quite intelligent, uh, yourself. And well, thank you. <laughs> uh, my whole audience just went, no, <laughs> But, uh, and, and, and that, that's the whole point of what experience tells us is that we're not just doing the same thing over and over, but we're responding to cues that say, okay, that was successful. Okay. I got what I wanted from that. And some people are more amenable to, to closing that feedback loop and seeing what works and what doesn't versus someone who is maybe just a talker versus a talker and a listener. So that's where experience comes into play even if you're not a professional, right? You could be, like I said, the YouTuber with one bird and you could have a lot of really good experience and be a really good listener of animal body language and a responder as well. So I'm, I don't mean to hack on the one person or the amateur by any means. They, they could be very valuable, mm -hmm. but closing that feedback loop, like you're just talking about, like I'm noticing this and this is the outcome that I'm getting. That is probably one of the most important assets for anyone and that's communication. Yeah, I'm I'm big on communication. I think I think that's important. I think we can communicate with animals, not in any weird pet psychic way. Um, I'm nodding like crazy. <laughs> you are, you are. Yes, this is a problem I have with some of my guests. They will they will nod a lot and laugh a lot, but they don't want it on mic for some reason. So like I'm making jokes and someone is cracking up and fighting the urge that you're doing it right now. <laughs> there it is. There we go. We got a live one. But uh, yeah, no, but um. Yeah, that's cool though. I appreciate that because sometimes when I, I've told people that, I feel like an insane person, but I really do think it's, you know, really reading the animals and, and having, like you said, having understood this is what they need. And then I get to have the better experience. And then afterwards, I can get goosebumps and walk away all shaky and yay. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. And that is, that is, that is true communication. So you are, animals are, are experts more so than us. And we say this a lot in the animal world, and we've probably read it a lot, that they are experts at, at reading our body language and our more subtle cues because that's what survivorship means for them. We don't have to survive based on subtle cues. So we don't read them very well. But when you do, because it gets you what you want, i.e., you know, 
little special time with a red panda, then, <laughs> then, then it matters to us more. I, I love how you're, and, and, you know, we're friends with Danny, uh, Danny Poirier Larson, <laughs> who anyone who has listened knows the name by now. Um, and I, she's the only other person I've met who is always thinking in terms of training like that. Uh, and that was so funny. I, as even as much as I've thought about this myself and about how I get to have that cool, you know, those cool experiences and stuff, I never thought of it as that's my positive reinforcement. Sure. But it clearly is. Yes. You're clearly correct about that. Um, <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I just, yeah, I never thought about that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, okay. So I want to talk, there are just so many things I want to talk to you about because this is such a special place. Um, but we were talking a little bit about the fact that, um, you know, zookeeping and animal care and call the field, whatever you will, cause this is, this is not a zoo, you know, um, is largely at this point seems to to be dominated by by young strong women, and then the leadership is old school white dudes. Um, and you are a badass lady leader in the field. Uh, what does that mean to you, and how did you get there? Yeah, um, I was partly pushed, partly driven um, to be where I am today, and I do think. That it is not a, I, I know that it's not an easy place to be where I am. And I constantly am reminded of that in all kinds of different ways. Um, even in just like the client contracts, the way that I talk to people inside and outside of the zoo world. Um, I do, I do plenty of other work, you know, with my animals that, that involves, you know, photography shoots and that kind of, um, work. And it is very challenging, but, um, at, I was a, what you would call scientifically speaking, like a technician, uh, in the zoo world. So like a, a zookeeper, an animal trainer, and it is dominated by, um, women. And as I mentioned to you, and I've said this before that, uh, I also was part of sort of the process or the, the machine where there were the, the men, uh, that were the part of the, the higher ups, the, the management. And if you are, in the management as a, as a male, as a white male, as a, you know, just a male, and you're not recognizing that the power differential exists and you're not responding to it, then you're doing it wrong. And I, I hope that in this day and age that it will somehow kind of catch up to us all. Um, but for me starting up avian behavior international, I think it helped me to not be aware of that at the time because it was 2013 and I didn't really think about it. I come from a family of entrepreneurs and uh, my my dad started his own business and he encouraged me to do that. I have plenty of family members that were just like, yeah, do it because I was fairly unhappy with, with where I was. I was not in control of the animals in my care. I didn't have a say in what happened um, to their health and welfare. And I just could, I couldn't do that. I was so used to flying birds the way that I, that made me happy that I, I couldn't do that where I was. So I just, there was, there was no, there was no other way if I was going to keep uh, finding um, a, a path forward, I guess. So uh, that's why I say like it was it was practically inevitable and I'm not a woo woo kind of person. <laughs> so there was just no way I, I, I there was there was nothing there for me. I could not play the game. I, I, I cannot play the game in order to gain 
places of power. Yup. Oh yeah. I know that story. I have skipped more important parties with producers that I just didn't feel like being social or COVID was happening and I didn't want to, you know, die for my career or whatever. And I just, yeah, playing the game sucks Mm -hmm. at every level. And I'm a cis straight white dude. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine trying to play the game (laughs) with power differentials coming into play as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It just, it was not, I think I maybe thought about it for like a week and I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, as hard as it's been to build this business and I did have, I, I did have a, a business partner when I first started and it was terrifying to think of going at it alone. Um, but then it just became obvious that this isn't this isn't going to work out between the two of us and so i just was like okay well this is this is me and it was it, it has been very hard i've had even male interns treat me just in a way that i, I if if it were me as a as a man sitting there i couldn't imagine someone talking to a man that way and it's it is infuriating it's horrifying but at the same time, it's also really, really rewarding to have come this far. And if everything falls apart tomorrow, I'd still be really proud of everything that I have accomplished, but also that the people who have supported me and been here with me that also have helped accomplish too. That's awesome. And what do you do to pay it forward? Are, are you helping you know, the next generation? Heck no. <laughs> shit. That just happened. (laughs) Uh, No, absolutely not. So um, I, my whole, my whole like ethos is around creating a business, an organization, a, a safe space, a supportive space to really empower obviously women, but everyone, you know, I can't be like, no boys allowed. No, no. Um, but like creating a safe space where people find their strengths, find um, a place where, yes, it is led by women, um, but also how to how to be aware of all of that and what to do in that type of environment where you're recognizing those differentials. You're recognizing how hard it, I am. I, I think if anything good, one of the things good coming out of the p- pandemic is that transparency is of the utmost importance in a workspace. So that is one thing that we talk about a lot here and just being transparent about whole kinds of things. And so that is one thing here that is is quite, quite important and part of our daily routine, but then also just really uplifting and empowering the people in my space and allowing them to be creative, innovative, hold themselves accountable and each other accountable and just really kind of going for it. I Really love that. And I'm I'm curious. Um, so you are an expert in training birds, but that applies to humans too, right? And and again, kind of that's the thing we were talking about, how a lot of times the 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 people who are not good managers in zoos, and again, there are a lot of amazing people in management at zoos. I you, if you listen to the podcast, you know I love zoos. I love the mission. I think most people there are magical, but there are always going to be bad apples everywhere. And I think I just can you talk to the fact that like management 
and training are like, and animal training overlap about a hundred percent, right? I mean, you can give Brazil nuts to, to employees when they do good work and they'll crack them open. Uh, okay. Not quite that much, <laughs> but, but go ahead and talk about that. a little. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> so, um, that is something that is, has always been really important to me. And I've actually given presentations on that kind of showing the overlap and try not to make it too simplistic, but there are things that I think that you can do as a manager in just making sure that the way that you're treating another human being is the way that you would also treat the animal in your care that can go anywhere and do anything like a free-flying bird. And that you're not going to keep that person emotionally hostage uh, with their compassion, just like you wouldn't do that with a bird that can be like, nah, not going back into that crate not going back into that aviary because that is literally my job. And so I don't want to be the person that, you know, takes something away from a person just to kind of hold the leverage there. Just like I wouldn't want to be the person that my hawk is like, where are you hiding that food from me? I'm I'm not leaving until you give it back. That's not what I want. That, that wouldn't get me anything from my falconry bird. It's not going to go out and do anything cool that I want to see. And that's kind of the way that I feel about the people that I work with is like, I want them to innovate. I want them to create, I want them to do amazing things that, that I facilitate, but don't tell them what exactly to do. So I think um, the only way that we get there is by reinforcing the small steps and then just like watching the nonlinear, like approximations happen. And y'all, I can actually vouch for that um, because I've been here for for a while and I've watched Hillary with the staff and what she's talking about now so specifically is something that happened so organically. But I noticed it as she was giving instructions on what to do while we do the podcast. There was a lot of choice in those instructions and I noticed that because normally it's like – all right, guys, I'm going to be doing a podcast. So you go feed this and you go water this and you go whatever. And it was very much, hey, and if somebody wants to do this and if somebody feels, you know, I'm, I'm sure everything will get done today. I'm not worried about that. But it was – there was a lot of choice. There was a lot of um, – I could see people, the, the the people that are working here, I could see the wheels turning. Oh, I can work on that. Oh, I could grow this way. I, it was such a different thing than what you see anywhere really um and i did notice that it kind of stood out to me i was like oh she's she's very good at this <laughs> i'm glad that I, I appreciate that thank you absolutely um so how like how how did you get into free flying birds just what is what is your story because that is is there anything scarier no, no. <laughs> the answer is no. I loved that little experience yeah. that we had. And I was also scared I, when they started taking off. I was like, no, come back. Even though, you know, I know that's what they do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm a big proponent of mentorship. Like that is one of my big things. And I actually, I used to be a horseback rider. I used to jump big jumps. Oh, wow. Also terrifying. And when I was in college, I, uh, I sold my, uh, show jumper and I just, I, I kind of went through some things. And so I sold him and I was like, I love birds. I've always loved birds. I had birds and I really wanted to get the parrot that I always wanted. I'm in college. Okay. That's not what you do. 
I'm also going like pre-vet at Colorado State. Not what you do. But uh, that's what I did. I, I, I took some of the money that I got from my horse and I bought a sulfur-crested cockatoo so what? smart. Oh my yeah. gosh. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you did not live in a dorm. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Um, and so I lived in a duplex. Super cool of me. Also, you know, just like pre-dork or like, you know, just like the makings of a dork. And um, this was kind of like the big time when like Yahoo groups were getting started. Okay. And uh, and there was a, a guy who lived near me that free flew his parrots. And... Um, and so he was like, you got to come over, you, bring your cockatoo. And I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> and so he very quickly just like mentored me on how to free fly my sulfur crested cockatoo. And that was it, man. Like I got three more cockatoos. <laughs> thanks to this guy. I trained, he kind of got burnt out on raising his birds. So he let me raise his, his birds. He was a breeder, kind of like sort of breeder. And he let me train like his already sold babies how to free fly. <laughs> like it was bananas, but he was my mentor and he's like, I'm still friends with him 20 years later. And, uh, and so it was just like, that's how I, I, I didn't realize like I was a risk taker. I follow the rules. Like I come to full stops at stop signs. I speed <laughs> a little bit, but like, I am a rules girl. And like, suddenly like, I'm just like free flying everyone's birds. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. How long do you have to work on the process before? And I know it's going to be probably different for every bird, but in general, how long or what, um, what steps do you need to see get taken before you're like, all right, this is going to be, you know, here's day one free flight. We're actually doing this now. Right. Yeah. Every bird is is different, but I want to see some fluency. I want to see, you know, just the bird feeling confident coming to my hand or glove or a table. I want to see it having agility, flying up and down, busting through some branches. And so it depends, but some birds take you know, uh, like a couple weeks, some birds are a little bit longer. If it takes too long, then that's probably not the bird that I'm going to free fly. Cause it's, it's going to be a little bit too spooky out there. So I wanted to see a couple of weeks, you know, working and then, and then we're going to, we're going to go. That's fast. Mm -hmm. That's really fast. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, are smarter birds or let's say less intelligent birds, uh, better for, for this? Hmm. Well, I would say, I, I I don't think either one really matters. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because each bird, as we know, is as smart as it needs to be in order to survive. And the less sort of advanced thinkers, uh, you don't fly them the same way. Like you wouldn't fly an owl the same way you would fly a macaw. So you ask it to do different things and you're just looking for different cues that it's nervous or stressed. And so you just wouldn't do the same thing that you would do. That was very diplomatic of you, but no, that's fair though. That's fair. Um, so, uh, well, before I get to it, cause I have, I have questions. I have, I have questions from people. Um, but before we get to some of those, uh, there was one more thing I wanted to do, which was, let's just talk about some of the birds that live here. Yeah. Um, I, I got to go and see them and it's, it's amazing. Um, and I'll let you choose some of the ones that you want to highlight, but first you need to tell me about your Turaco because I'm obsessed with Turacos. Pogo the Turaco. Yes. Uh, he is 
like he is so he's so funny, but he has his likes and his dislikes on his food. So he doesn't get to eat a lot of like sugary fruits these days just because we're, you know, we're careful. And when we give him like his veggies in the morning, he's like, where's that sweet potato? Uh, let me let me see the sweet potato. So he works for his berries and and whatnot. And then also, if you're wearing new shoes, he's going to judge. <laughs> So he gets down and he's just like, he's just going to vocalize like crazy at your shoes. So you got to work them in nice and easy. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's amazing. That's amazing. So tell me about some of your faves here. Um, my, I'm, everyone's like, oh, I bet you don't have a favorite. And I'm like, oh, of course I do. Please. I have not yet met a person who, some won't say it on the podcast, but in private doesn't have a favorite or favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes it depends on the day, like which birds made me the most stressed. Um, <laughs> but my two general favorites are LaRue, the Caracara and Forrest, the white necked Raven. So those are two of my general favorites. I have like all time favorites, like Kipling, the ground hornbill and Guinness, the Eurasian eagle owl. But, um, LaRue, the Caracara just has like so much personality. And so let me interrupt for one second, just in case I don't know that everyone listening will know what a Caracara is. Got it. So hit me. Okay. So, uh, Caracara is in the falcon family. There's a few different species of the Caracara. They're found in South America. They are generally a scavenger, although some um, are known to eat wasps. And they spend a lot of, the Crested Caracara spends a lot of time on the ground. And you can find them somewhere in Florida. You can find them in Texas, uh, New Mexico, maybe, and then Mexico down into like um, uh, through uh, Central and South America. Um, amazing birds. Go look them up. They're incredible. One, I read the book, The Most Remarkable Creature, and I got to um, do a Zoom call with the author. And it's an interesting book. Um, he's not, it's clear he's not really super crazy about birds being in human care. So um, I kind of, I kind of picked it up, but he, it didn't look like there was a lot of like, he maybe went to like one place and was like, drew some conclusions from that. So I understand. But, um, but uh, he went to Guyana and now I have to go to Guyana. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, so LaRue is just incredibly smart and just always inquisitive looking for, you know, the next thing to poke his head in, but also like it's sometimes it's 51st dates with him. So like if he sees <laughs> something the next day, you can't be sure it's not going to be, he's not gonna be like, ah! like and like spook at it so it is you know he keeps you on your toes and then he's also led me on one of like the longest fly-offs which is also like part of free free flying you know you you might lose a bird you might you know sweat a lot um and that's just part of it and then whenever you know we have to drive the truck around looking for the signal and everything i look at you know whoever's next to me i'm like isn't this fun <laughs> <laughs> And actually, you know what? I was going to get there later, but since you brought it up now, um, let's talk about that flyoffs. Yeah. Um, so, so you said signal. So I'm assuming that you have some kind of radio collaring or something. But I didn't see collars, so that's probably not the right word. But. We don't have we don't have transmitters on like the macaws. Okay. So okay, uh, they could they could fly off, and and we are like putting out notices. <laughs> um, but uh, all the other birds, for the most part, um, that can wear one, we do put on transmitters, GPS, or radio, and it goes either on a backpack. Or on their tail, um, some leg mounts. I bet those are some adorable backpacks. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, LaRue definitely wears one because he can fly very far. And as you notice, like there's rocks, there's hills, and it interrupts the signal. So like that hill that you saw just like up here, mm-hmm. um, it is straight up and it's about two to 400 feet in some places. And if you can imagine a 96 degree day and having to drag a crate straight up that hill <laughs> looking for your bird, that's my life. <laughs> and Wow. Yeah, and then getting back down and being like, "Isn't this great?" Lovely. Yeah. Um, but you're you're usually successful and and yeah, we've everyone? never like we haven't had like a bird like disappear nice. disappear. Nice. So, um, but it, we always say like it it could happen. Right. Like that is a possibility. So, um, you know, when we flew our birds in the at the Memphis Zoo uh, last year, uh, and the macaws were just kind of mapping the area. That's that's scary. You know, there's there's predator habitats and they're in trees and they're you can't see the visibility is really scary. But the macaws know they know their job. They know how to get back. And that's that's just part of it. So it's I can see where it's really alarming for someone who's not used to that. But it's it's really thrilling for me just to see them work together to get back home. Right. So I I love it. I love watching them just figuring things out. That's awesome. Cool. So uh, tell me about a couple more of the birds here. Okay. So let's see. I said forest. We met forest. He is the white necked raven. I'm in love. Yes. I think I like black birds with white because my Russell Crowe, same thing. Pied Crowe. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. I think the birds that challenge me the most as a trainer and have to like, I have to think through their, their like species differences, their ethological tendencies. Those are the kinds of birds that just really kind of get me thinking even at night. So Forrest is just incredibly intelligent. There's, there's so much that I just kind of want to unleash in his potential. So that's kind of the reason why I really feel drawn to him. Um, and then uh, Kipling, the Southern ground hornbill is also one that is such a big challenge. <laughs> He's nine years old, officially kind of what you would consider a mature ground hornbill. They can live for 70 years. Whew. And uh, at nine, they're finally like ready to breed. And he is ve- he can be very territorial in the springtime. He goes, he goes looking. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so it, it's scary. It is, it is scary. And, uh, and I, I, I don't like that kind of stress. <laughs> so he doesn't have a transmitter on, so he would destroy it. So, uh, that, that kind of bird is just, I haven't seen too many people and I'm not saying it's not out there. I'm not like to- tooting my own horn. I just haven't seen too many people do what we do with him. So there's just not a lot of models and not a ton of people that we can ask. There's people who work with their northern ground hornbills, but that's a completely different barrel of monkeys than a southern ground hornbill. So it would be nice to be able to see if like if there's another path that other people have have taken uh that I could just talk with or if it's just me just like you know like figuring things out and then it's like why would you do that? I don't know. No 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 one told me not to. <laughs> Well, that's fun. Um, when when people come here and book an experience here, what what is that experience going to be? That yeah, that is a good question. So, people can like arrange different experiences depending on the birds that they really want to learn about and interact with. And I always say people generally come for the owls, but they stay for all of like the other birds because they get to typically 
you know, book an experience with, let's say, like Birds of Prey. So they get to meet and and really see what the differences are between like an owl, a falcon, and a hawk, let's say. Or they might do like just an owl prowl, which is our different owls. And then at the end, they come for a whole tour of the farm. They learn about how we're growing things, our bees, our donkeys, our goats, uh, all of the things. And they meet everything and they just fall in love with all of the different birds. They never have seen a ground hornbill. They didn't know about the Mabula ground hornbill project in South Africa. And they didn't even know that a kookaburra laughing was not a monkey, you know? <laughs> right, right. And, and so then then it gets them excited about all the little things that we talk about. And so that part is really enriching. So it's usually like an hour and a half to two hours. They can come with their families. Little kids can come for like some of the experiences, but not all of the experiences because we don't want anyone to have a negative interaction with either bird or human. So, uh, we, but we do want to have those up close experiences that you might not get to have at a zoo. So that is, that's something that's really important to me. It's like an informal conversation about conservation and just like the little things, but then we can also kind of get, I don't want to say political, but I say political adjacent. So we can talk about some really tough things like, Hey, did you know there's actually a price that we could save the Amazon rainforest. Like if the whole world contributed $20 billion to Brazil, we could actually like incentivize not deforesting the Amazon. Right. And just putting some of those little ideas out there in a non-controversial, non-confrontational way that that just starts seeding these thoughts that it doesn't matter what what where you are in the political spectrum, that we can just talk about it because we've we've developed this rapport. You love my owl, I love my owl. And you love Leo the hyacinth macaw, I love Leo the hyacinth macaw. Guess what? We can do this together. We just have to like think about it in a different way. Dang, I really like that. That's really cool. Um I feel like almost everyone I talk to, myself included, look at uh con- conservation as the end game. But looking at it as, um, you know, a larger way to now that we're connected through these animals to talk about other stuff, too, uh, is really interesting. That's that's very cool. Yeah. Very yeah. Cool. I would agree. Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, their whole the whole point of these birds is for them to have a story so they can tell you another story that that is my 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 point with giving them a name you know, putting them on social media so that people actually have like a touch point for a much bigger picture. Right. That's awesome. Very cool. Um, you used the term earlier, progressive bird trainer. Uh, what does that mean to you? And what, what, especially the progressive part, we all know what bird trainer means by now, but uh, what, what does that phrase mean to you? Yeah. So I, I actually got that term from uh, Emily Larlam, who is a dog trainer, very, very good dog trainer. Uh, and she is of Kiko pup fame on YouTube and she's, she's amazing. And so she uses progressive training to talk about that, you know, positive reinforcement can mean so many different things. And we base everything that we do on giving, trying to organize it. So the animal gets what they want. But when we just use positive reinforcement, sometimes we're putting that focus a little bit harshly on maybe it's motivation. And so the animal training world, the bird training world can get pretty, um, what do I want to say? The animal, the bird training world can get 
pretty focused on using motivation in the in forms of like weight management. They can, we can, it's it's a we. Uh, <laughs> we can we can kind of demonize some some forms of operant conditioning like negative reinforcement, and by doing so, by kind of putting us into this like these four squares of of positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment, we aren't so much always focusing on what the animal wants. And so by moving into like progressive forms of weight management, progressive forms of, of just a comprehensive look of training, we can kind of expand the nuance so that we aren't looking so much at lines being drawn in the, in those quadrants. And so that's really allowed me to focus on skill building for animals. And what I, what I wasn't realizing is that it was a natural progression into the constructional approach, the non-linear way of, uh, training versus the linear way of training, the hierarchical approach. And I didn't even realize that was a thing until Dr. Joe Lang started really talking about it, wrote a book about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is, kind of what I was doing and I was really excited about it. So I was already using negative reinforcement, which was basically offering the animal space when it was showing, you know, bits of calm when it wasn't eating in front of me so that I could get it to eat in front of me and all of these things. And I, and I started this several years ago and I was already, when I would give like free webinars, already rubbing up against like some, some contention when people were like, well, negative reinforcement is bad. And I was like, well, let's just watch this video. <laughs> let, me, let me just show you what right, I'm right. talking about. And so, um, and so now it's becoming even more popularized, but I have been talking about progressive training uh, this whole time, just so that it wasn't this really tight label of just positive reinforcement. That's really cool. That makes a lot of sense. I really like that. Um, so, uh, I guess the, you know, you mentioned, uh, training with food. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, um, how do you motivate birds that aren't that into food? And, um, do you ever use like, you know, attention or, or praise as a reinforcer and, and how does that work? Yeah. So we do run into birds that aren't just into food or, or just aren't into food at all. So we will use like praise, I guess guess, but that's, that's a, that's a slippery slope for a few different reasons that I'll get into. Um, and, and tactile reinforcers are one of those. You saw me like with Forrest, um, giving him some chin rubs, which he really liked the thing about, uh, non-food reinforcers that you, that you have to be careful with is that you want to make sure that with other trainers, that it doesn't put too much emphasis on one trainer because then you can get some undesirable behaviors like sexy time. So, <laughs> and that happens. <laughs> so you want to make sure that, uh, that your bird isn't just like, Oh, this is, this is my person because they are, a lot of them will naturally form pair bonds. So, um, we think of praise as something that we like. And so sometimes we'll map that onto the animals that, that are in our care and we need to, we need to test it and see if it's actually something that does in fact reinforce behavior. So what I will often use in, instead of like praise and, and again, sometimes it works, but also like sometimes I get too excited and the animal's like, we're throwing a party. I got to bite you. Cause that's what they do is, um, is instead of praise, I might offer it like a toy that it really likes. Um, 
I might take it somewhere that it really wants us, you know, wants to be. And that can be, I arrange the training session so that it's easy for that to happen. Or um, space as a reinforcer is really, really powerful. And that's where we go to negative reinforcement, where if that animal isn't comfortable eating in front of me, all I have to do is start shaping it to start looking at the food and I step away, I remove myself. And that can be a really powerful reinforcer because it's like, I want this food, but I don't want you here. So then I can start using that shaping program so that it gets the animal what it wants. Wow. That's really cool. Very nice. All right. Do you find that there's a big difference? Uh, I mean, obviously relationship building is a huge part of this, huge part of this. Um, but do you find that it's, it's different, um, when you're doing something like falconry or, you know, versus like your time in a zoo or, or even pets, cause you have pets and I love your dogs, but, mm-hmm. um, is it, is it a different kind of relationship building or is it all the same, you know, underlying? I mean, obviously there's the, the, I'm sure you could make it all the same in very vague terms, but yeah. Yeah. I think falconry is probably one of the most incredible forms of relationship building. And uh, Dr. Lauren McGow actually put this really interestingly, that it's sort of crazy that a bird of prey is a kind of animal that lets us hunt with it and for it. And I never really realized it, but it's like no other animal does that with us. And so I think also one of the neat things about falconry and it's to its credit and that that it also works this way is that there are so many ways that there are so many means to an end and there's some older traditional methods of falconry there's some newer methods of falconry and but we had to get we had to do some things in the beginning to get to where we are. And I think that's important to remember is that, yeah, there are some older methods to everything, but they're stepping stones and they allow us to, to get to where we are. So relationship building and falconry for me is really teaching the bird. Okay. You know, this is where we are in the beginning. This is a wild animal usually. And so this is where we are in the beginning, but then I'm going to kind of get the let out basically is what I always say. (laughs) And I'm going to really let you show me all of the creative ways that you can achieve the goal that you want. And that's all part of it. And so to some extent, uh, that is kind of the way that I, I want all of the relationships in my birds to look like is I really want to see them fly. I really want to see them express themselves through flight. And so the relationships that I do may be different in my falconry birds versus the macaws versus the crane, for instance, but I'm always building their skills in little different ways so that they feel confident and can you know really shape the way that they want to be in flight. Cool. All right. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, you have, um, you have human reared birds and non-human reared birds out there. Yes. Uh, is there a, is there a big difference, um, both in working with like just living with them and in training them and does imprinting play a large part on all of this? Oh gosh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in some cases it was, it was unavoidable, whether it was just a set of uh, parents that refused to rear the birds. And in some cases it's by design. For instance, with owls, we typically do uh, hand raise and, and rear the owls so that uh, they um, just show the kinds of ambassador behaviors that we really want them to do. But uh, hand reared imprinted birds, 
can come with a set of behavior scenarios that can also make it really challenging. And part of it has been a situation for me that has also been a learning curve because not a lot of people have some of the birds that I have been working with or the way that I work with them. So it's just like, okay, what, like, what is this going to look like, you know, three years down the line? The caracara, for instance, can be a really big challenge. And most caracaras in human care, I, most of them are injured birds. And so they do not look like what LaRue looks like. So some of the imprint situations that he shows us are completely just like, okay, we got to, we got to work through this. But, um, but as a non-imprinted bird, a lot of them might show stress related behaviors in the scenarios that we're asking them to do. So then it would be like, which, which one is worse, right? So I always tell people that come here when they ask if these birds are, are rescues or rehabbed birds, I always tell them that we raise our birds the way that we raise them, whatever way that is, is because we want them to show their natural behaviors in unnatural scenarios. We want them to be as comfortable as we possibly can have them be so that people kind of get a peek inside of what it looks like for an animal in the wild but still be completely comfortable around humans. And so for us, that means really looking at the way we deliver food, how we deliver food, how often we deliver food, uh, and really making sure that our whole paradigm is all about making that animal as stress-free as possible. And with imprint birds, it can be really, really challenging because, you know, uh, delivering food, um, weight issues, all of those take into account. So it is, it's complex. And we talk about that in the avian behavior lab all the time. We actually have a live, uh, session coming up about that because it is so challenging. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Um, I have, I have one more training question, but don't let me forget that I then want to talk about the the lab and I want you okay. to kind of explain what that is. Um, but, uh, you know, do you always reinforce certain behaviors or do you believe in variable reinforcement schedules or is it again different for you? I feel like everything is different for each animal, but in general, what is your feeling on that? Yeah. Uh, it is different for every animal. I typically, um, if I want to like increase my criteria for animals that are really fluent, I won't reinforce everything, but I will look for what the reinforcer will be. And it's not necessarily food. So for instance, like Leo stepping up, a lot of times the reinforcer is, well, I'm going to take you where you want to go. So it doesn't always have to be food for a hyacinth macaw that just really wants my company. Right. So I don't have to necessarily do that. Uh, maybe for like the owl that is flying to my glove, I need to decide, first of all, how, how much effort goes into that behavior? How strong is it? And like, what is what comes next? Because if it's just like an easy flight down to the glove and then he gets tons of food because I'm about to put him into his crate, then I won't necessarily reinforce that behavior, if that makes sense. So I'm always looking at what, at like what the context of the behavior is. So I wouldn't necessarily call it variable because sometimes the, the reinforcer just comes for what comes next, but you always just kind of are looking like maybe the criteria is not one flight up, but it's two flights up, but you still get the same amount as if it were one reinforcer per flight. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Very cool. Um, so yeah, so talk to me about Avian Behavior Lab. 
Yeah. So this is like my baby. I love the lab and I started it sort of serendipitously right before, well, not right before the pandemic, but in 2019, like mid 2019. And I'd been thinking about it for like a year and a half. And I built the site by myself, which I'm not a tech person. I'm a bird trainer. So I cried (laughs) so many times. (laughs) Like FTP transfers. Like, what is that? Like, I cried and cried and cried. I, um, I just was a mess, but I started building it in 2018 and, and it just kind of came to life. I had no idea what was going to happen. And we just started like building courses and then it was suddenly easier to be like, oh, you know, cause like I was thinking of courses, like how to step up, how to fly to hand. And then it was like, oh, here's like a simple little course, like about bridging and just like what, whatever is in my mind just like comes out into a course or a live stream. There's a community forum where people can actually, you know, submit their own videos, ask any question that they want. Because also what I was seeing is like in like falconry groups on Facebook or were even in the comment section on Instagram, people were getting obliterated. People are so mean. Remember we were talking oh, about this. Oh, social media sucks. <laughs> yes. People are so mean. Yep. And I was like, just like ABI, I want a safe and supportive place where people can grow. You can post your dirtiest picture, you know, your kinkiest hose. <laughs> I think that means something different to uh, those listening uh, <laughs> than, than you're thinking right now. <laughs> I think of like all of the host pictures that people freak out about on those zookeeper forums Yes, and like just rant about. You can, you can post whatever you want and it is going to be this like really supportive group that's just like, hey, let's work through this challenging situation and I'm going to, you know, I'm also, my, my point was is to teach people how to think about problems scientifically so that I could kind of like you know, just sort of untangle the thoughts in my brain in how like I think about situations where it's like, yeah, there's a really big sucky problem, but I know, I know how to figure it out. It might take some time, but I know how to figure it out. And so that was kind of the point for the lab. And so it started in 2019 and it like, I just started adding some remote assistance to help me with various things because it was just like getting to be so much. And one of the people was like, oh my gosh, you have so much content. Why aren't you talking about this more? And I was like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't have time. I'm training things. So uh, yeah, we're, we're starting to do a few different things and kind of offload some of the stuff from my plate so that we can like put out different content ideas for people who aren't really sure kind of what's going on in there, but there's so much good stuff and we're getting like experts to, you know, join in and all that good stuff. So it's really fun. That's awesome. And what is like, is it a membership based thing and how does that work? Yeah. It's a membership subscription. There's a basic membership for like mostly geared towards your parrot people. We have some dog and cat people in there too. And then the premium membership is for like your, your upper level parrot people, as well as like your, your zoo uh, and wildlife rehab, your educator trainers, and then a facility membership. We actually have people that like banded together because it is like a lower cost per person. Mm-hmm. So your facility, like your corporate kind of accounts where people can get sub accounts and, uh, that's a premium level membership, but just, you know, for, for more sub accounts. So it's really cool. It's a lot of fun in there. That's awesome. Very cool. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I know what you mean about sometimes like people talk about, why aren't you talking about this more and more? I get suggestions on things to do for Rasafari all the time. And I'm like, guys, I sleep like five hours a night as it is. I'm trying. I'm really trying. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. It gets tough sometimes. I totally believe it. It's a lot to put on a podcast. Oh, for yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah. And quickly talk about that because you have a podcast too. Yeah. So I have the Avian Behavior Podcast and – uh, like I mentioned before, like my audience is really broad. So I love to talk about parrots. I love to talk about raptors. I love to talk about avian nutrition. And just sometimes I have people like you do. And sometimes I just talk to myself in my <laughs> husband's reptile room. <laughs> so it really just kind of depends. But we do get a lot of positive feedback and some like requests for certain topics. But just talking about behavior problems and yeah. And all the good things, we get suggestions through our Patreon and all that, all that comes with just avian behavior. Yeah. Love it. It's, it's a cool podcast. And Danny was on it too. That's, that's when I first listened. And, uh, there's some really cool stuff. I listen sometimes, sometimes it's over my head. I'm not going to lie, but I also not a trainer. So, you know, it makes sense. But, um, I do like how you break things down. I think it's, it's very, um, very accessible. Yeah, there's a few things that even my like non-bird friends listen to. Like I got into grief uh, when my dog died and just uh, talked about mentorship. You know, a few things that are a little bit more broad because I am just a I just like to learn. Yeah. And so I consume I consume a lot. My uncle was like, "Do you ever just sit like and <laughs> not read or listen?" And I'm like, "No." <laughs> yeah, that's real. That's real. Yeah. Um, are there any conservation organizations you'd like to give a shout out to? Yes, I'm a big fan of the Ojai Raptor Center. It's not too far away from us. We uh, raised an owl for them and she's the best. Her name is Juniper. She's a great horned owl. Um, there are so many of the best birds, but uh, so <laughs> yes, animal people, myself including or included, do not understand the word favorite or best or what, the, what those words actually mean. Yeah, as well as the Mabula Ground Hornbill Project is an incredible, incredible uh, rescue, rehabilitation, and research organization in South Africa. Nice, very cool. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossipari poop story. <laughs> okay, well, I've got a Pretty gross one. Um, I I do on occasion just do gross things on accident. But uh, one morning I was eating a breakfast cookie and I was going around just like taking care of the birds and I was going to feed out our vulture. And so uh, as you probably know, our vultures tend to eat like the older foods that are, are left. And so I had my cookie in one hand and old mice in the other hand. And I was like, oh, I better eat this cookie before I go into the vulture aviary real fast. And I took a bite from the wrong hand. Oh my like, God. Full, just like <laughs> full bite. Just <sighs> as you would when you swallow a cookie real oh, fast. <laughs> oh, that's. That's rough. Yeah. 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 I, I can still taste it like in my mouth too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah that one, that one will stay with you for mm -hmm. life. Yeah. 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 
Wow. So, okay. On well, brand, though. Yeah, like, I like it. I like, like, there's not too many, too many things that I haven't done that I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds about right. That would be what I would do. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Yay. All right. So if you're interested in learning more about ABI, you can go to avian-behavior.org or follow along on social media at avianbehavior. And you can search on whatever app you're listening to this episode on to find the Avian Behavior Podcast, a podcast that talks all about avian behavior that is hosted by Hillary. It's a really good listen, like I said. And again, you could even check out the episode featuring Danny Poirier Larson, who I feel is not just a real person and good friend, but also basically a character on this podcast at this point. I'd like to take a minute to say thanks to Laura Shank, my Red Panda level patron, and also to remind you all to make sure that you're following along, subscribe to the podcast, and back here on Friday for our next weekly episode of Rasafari Zoo News, the latest going-ons in the world of zoos and aquariums and conservation and animal stuff. It's always a good time. And uh, finally, a friendly reminder that the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.